Well, as I said just a moment ago, we're going to turn our attention to this major character, not only of the first five books of the Bible, not only of Joshua, but in, in a sense, the whole Old Testament, the land, the promised land uh, of, of Israel. Uh, I'll quote Walter C. Kaiser here, very famous commentator and theologian. He says, quote, in the Old Testament, few issues are as important as that of the promise of the land to the patriarchs and the nation of Israel. In fact, aretz, which is the Hebrew word for land, aretz is the fourth most frequent substantive or noun in the Hebrew Bible. Were it not for the larger and more comprehensive theme of the total promise with all its multifaceted provisions, the theme of Israel and her land could well serve as the central idea or the organizing rubric for the entire canon. Now, Maybe there's some words in there that, uh, that have a certain um, context to them. But his point is saying that if you weren't, uh, if you weren't uh, thinking just or, or looking also at the themes of like salvation and, and the themes of our sin uh, and so on, you could almost organize the whole Old Testament through the lens of the land of Israel, the promised land. And that's how significant it is. And yet, I discovered an irony. This is what drew me to doing this, um, maybe a epilogue to our series on Joshua, is that I was reading through Ezekiel, and in chapter 47 and 48, you have the mention of the borders and boundaries of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, you don't see that. So Ezekiel, we'll, we'll get to this in a second, but Ezekiel is almost a thousand years after, uh, like 800, 900 years after Joshua. It's the only other time in the whole Old Testament besides Joshua where you hear about the land and the boundaries and the tribes. So it's, it's significant uh, that it's only mentioned like one other time, but it's in the context of a future hope and a future promise. In other words, they're, they're not done with it yet. We're not done with it yet. Joshua, in a sense, if it's a story about the land, is not done yet. But before we jump into that, we need to remind ourselves of why is this whole land thing important. When I talk about, I'm going to use the promised land and probably the land of Israel somewhat interchangeably in the sermon, but understand that the modern nation of Israel its borders and boundaries are not the same as what is considered the promised land. It's, it's smaller than what is considered the promised land in the Old Testament. In fact, I think on your, yeah, on the back of your sheets, you have a, a map, and that's going to be Ezekiel 48's vision of the boundaries of Israel. But that's going to be more in line with what you should think than, say, a modern uh, map of, of Israel in 2023. So, Let's begin with where this whole land business starts. Um, well, <laughs> in terms of the particular promise of it. Of course, there's land at the very beginning in the first few days of creation when God creates the heavens and earth. Yes, there's land there. So that, that, that's technically the very beginning. But let's talk about the very beginning of this idea of what you might call a promised land. It's in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6 and 7. And God is talking to Abram, who will later be called Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish people. God tells him, verse 7, 
to your people. I'm sorry, verse, starting verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At the, that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So you have there this promise where prior to this, you, you don't know who Abraham is. There's nothing about him from Genesis 1 through 11. All of a sudden, the story of Genesis just locks on to one man out of all the men that have li- are living at this time where God gives a specific promise to this one man and it's rooted primarily in this, uh, in this uh, promise of dwelling in a place, okay? Now, he gives uh, a, a promise, actually, I should have done two uh, and three as well, uh, or one, two, and three as well, but um, we'll, we'll, get to, we'll get back to that anyway. But uh, God is, brings Abraham to land and he essentially says, see this land that you're dwelling in? This is all going to be for your offspring. And this is the place from which I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the world. It is centered on this territory, the, 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 the land beneath your feet. This gets reiterated. The next chapter, Genesis 13, 14 through 17. The Lord, or if you see capitalized there, L-O-R-D, that's actually not a title. That's God's covenant name, Yahweh. So I might... Use both there. Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So again, you have a promise from God to Abraham, a physical land that you are stepping on now, that you can see with your eyes, north, south, east, west. This is for you. This is for your offspring. How long? Forever. The deed says forever. Uh, 15, Genesis 15, verse 18 through 21. Again, Reiterated. <clears throat> Here, uh, the whole process of God making a formal, what they call covenant, to each other, uh, where animals are sacrificed in order to say this blood that is shed by these animals is sort of um, signing this contract between us. After that, verse 18, on that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt. To the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Again, reiterating, this promise I have upon you, Abraham, for blessing you, for blessing your family, for blessing everyone else, it is tied together intimately with a physical land, a physical space, with physical dimensions. All right? Now, this is unconditional. When you read these uh, Genesis 12, 13, 15, there's no uh, obligations on Abraham in order to have this. It's a very one-way sort of deal, right? Abraham gets everything. God is just giving it to him and to his offspring. So it's called, we might call an unconditional covenant. 
Now, as you know, there's hundreds of years that passed between the time of Abram to the time of Moses. I'm going to shortcut some of that history. Um, But essentially, when uh, the people wind up in Egypt for 400 years in slavery, they are not in that promised land. And we have a problem. We have a disconnect. God said, this land is the land where you are supposed to dwell, Abraham. But, you know, for various reasons, they ended up in Egypt. It's been a few hundred years. It's time for you to go back. God raises up Moses to lead the Israelites back into the promised land. And as they travel there, God starts to reveal to Moses something different than what he told Abraham. God starts to tell Moses, there are some conditions here for you to dwell in this land. We won't go through all you know five chapters but exodus 19 through 24 essentially forms the framework of the constitution of israel and its obligations and duties to god and god effectively says if you hold to these rules if you hold to this constitution you will be able to dwell in this land and prosper there um Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so Moses is supposed to communicate what we might call the Mosaic covenant, which is not just Exodus 19 through 24, but as you'll see, many, many, many passages of of rules, duties, obligations. There's a whole system of sacrifice that they need to keep. Um, There's laws about uncleanness and cleanness, rituals. If you've ever heard things about God uh, commanding that you shall not um, eat shellfish or things like that, that's all rolled up into these rules about how God wants the people in Israel to live in the promised land in order that they might stay there and be blessed. In Deuteronomy 28, You have a list of blessings and cursings. If you obey, blessing. If you disobey, it actually reads more like when you disobey, these negative things are going to happen. You see a similar list in Leviticus 26. Now, here's a question. There's an issue here. You gave an unconditional promise to Abraham. Abraham, your offspring, they are owed this land. God is given you this land unconditionally to you and your ancestors. So now you have these 12 tribes of Israel, the great, 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 well, great, great grandchildren. No. Who was Abraham to Ephraim? Father, grandfather, great grandfather. All right. Sorry. I should have figured that out before. So you got the great grandkids of Abraham who are wandering through the desert. And now, They're being told by God also, same God who told Abraham, unconditional. Now they're being told by God, listen, if you want to prosper in this land, you've got to do about 613 different commands. (laughs) You got to keep these and it'll be good for you. You'll be in the land. But if you can't obey these, you're out of here. Do you see a problem? Right? Doesn't that seem like a conflict? You have an unconditional promise from God to the people. And then on the other hand, a conditional promise. How can God keep that unconditional promise to Abraham if it's conditioned upon the obedience of these great-grandchildren? What does God need to do in order to reconcile this conflict? Well, God built that in to the whole situation. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 6, 
as, a, as God sums up the blessings and the cursings, again, kind of reiterating those uh, stipulations, he says, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, meaning God knows you are going to screw this up. You haven't even got there yet. I know you're going to screw this up. When these things come upon you, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nation where uh, Yahweh, your God, has driven you. Because one of the consequences, if you don't obey, you get kicked out of the land. Where did it go? They go out into the nation. So when you are in that situation and you call them to mind and return to Yahweh your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there Yahweh your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he'll make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So God's solution to this problem is that you I'm going to make it clear, you're going to make it clear that you can't keep all these commands. I could, you know, God is saying, I could give you all of the, the good rewards. It's like a kid. Like, I'm going to, I will, I will buy you every single video game console on the face of the planet. If you will just obey everything I say you, to you to a T, there's no kid that can do that. And so it doesn't matter how great you make this reward. You know, the, the children, they, they, they're not perfect. They're not going to obey. obey. So God is basically saying, I know that you're going to demonstrate your inability. And it's not because um, it's too hard. God actually says it's not too hard, but it's because of your sin and your selfishness that you are going to go away. But there will come a day when I am going to circumcise your heart. In other words, circumcision was a sign of your belonging to the covenant it's something that, that was done to you, um, and it made you a part of this covenant community. But God is saying something more deep has to happen. Your heart needs to be changed. So in order for you to be the kind of people that can keep the commands, God has to change the heart and the attitude. God himself has to act. That's how you can maintain that uh, seeming paradox. How is this an unconditional promise and also a conditional one. Well, what if God makes you able, in fact, almost um, forces you, it's not really forcing, but imagine like God can make it so that you will keep all the commandments of that conditional covenant. In other words, he can guarantee your success in keeping that covenant. Now they are both unconditional covenants in a sense, because God is saying, I can make it so that you will do all that I commanded. So there's no conflict, all right? So is that what happens? Well, frankly, yes, it is. God, through Moses, was giving future history. It wasn't a, a, a potential possibility that Israel was going to not obey. It was for a fact. In fact, um, they had disobeyed numerous times already. From them leaving Egypt to this point in Deuteronomy, they'd already screwed up a lot of times. From the point of view of Joshua, we've already talked about how they screwed up a lot of times. When we talked about the end of Joshua, 
was it good news or bad news? There's bad news because they're already in the midst of disobeying God. When we begin Judges, the next book, what do we talk about? How everyone's doing what was right in their own eyes. So very abundantly clear that they are going to screw this up. And so we won't go through every single chapter of the Old Testament, but take my word for it. By the time you get to the end of 2 Chronicles 36, which is the last of, say, the narrative passages of the Old Testament and the history of the kings, you got Saul and David and Solomon, and then they split into a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. You have all the kings like Josiah, and you have all the evil, wicked kings in the north, um, uh, like uh, Manasseh. We're going to see essentially this truth. God's people cannot for the life of them do the commandments of God and maintain their hold in the land. And so there is an end. In 2 Chronicles 36, you're, you're seeing the end of the kingdom of Israel. As a nation with a land and a people and a king over it, it's the end of this kingdom. It's, it looks like the end of the promise of Abraham. It looks like, uh, God, what's happening here? I thought you said that you're going to bless the whole world. They're going to dwell in the land forever and ever. Now, if, if you believe God and his promises, you oh, yeah, that's right. God told Moses, Deuteronomy 30, that he's going to regather them. But if you don't know your Bibles, you don't know your history, you would live at that time and you'd say, what, what is going on? And the prophets did lament. Their hearts are broken over this, men like Jeremiah and Isaiah. So in Second uh, Chronicles 36, uh, which culminates in a historical event, the fall of Jerusalem in uh, 586 B.C. to the Babylonians, just this is, you know, his, this is history. Um, in 586 B.C., the Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, the people are scattered all over the Babylonian Empire, and it looks desperate. And you, you have prophets that are speaking into this time. And one of those prophets is Ezekiel. Ezekiel preached just before the fall in 586 B.C., so he preached a little bit before that, and then he preached into that time of exile, and he spoke about the future of Israel. He knew, as a prophet of God who knew the word of God, that the Abrahamic covenant would ensure that the people and the land would be reunited. Now, this did come to pass in a short-term way. Um, You had 70 years of captivity in Babylon. The Persians came and conquered the Babylonians, and the Persian kings looked kindly at the the Israelites, the Jewish people, and they said, you can go back to your land. You're still under us. You're still our vassals. You're still under us. You still got to give us um, um, uh, tributes and things like that, but you can go back, rebuild your city, Jerusalem, rebuild your temple. You can start to worship again. And so they did, but it was not all the Israelites. It was just the scattered few, comparatively speaking. There was no king of Israel. In fact, the royal bloodline was cursed by God, and the land was not, of course, theirs. They didn't even occupy what we might consider all the land that was promised to Abraham. Um, They didn't occupy that land, and it was under Persian control anyway. So when you look at what happened in that time frame, you wouldn't look at that and say, ah, what Moses talked about 
or what God talked about through Moses in Deuteronomy 30 about bringing them back from the corners of the earth and restoring them, that's not this. In fact, in fact, Nehemiah 10.28, if you want to be disappointed a lot, um, you, can, you can either read my journal or <laughs> read the history of, of Israel, and you can find a lot of disappointment in both. I don't keep a journal, um, but <laughs> you can find a lot of disappointment uh, in these words. Nehemiah chapter 10, oh, I'm going the wrong way here. Verse 28, Nehemiah is one of God's chosen leaders to lead that effort to rebuild the, the temple, rebuild the city. And in, uh, in Nehemiah 10, 28, he gathers everybody. All right, now this time frame is about, uh, I'm going to use round numbers here, about 450 B.C. So the time of Joshua is more like 1400 B.C. So you got a thousand years between Joshua and Nehemiah. He gathers everyone, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers and nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of Yahweh our Lord and his rules and his statutes. And they commit themselves, once again, essentially, to the Mosaic Covenant. This time, we're going to do it. (laughs) This time, it'll be different. Sadly, how does it turn out? Three chapters later, (laughs) Nehemiah records that everybody is awful and doing awful things. I mean, I won't get into all the details, but people are working on the Sabbath. The priests and the Levites are acting crookedly. Um, They are doing, walking in all the ways of their fathers. They're intermarrying with with, uh, idolaters and pagans. Um, They don't purify them. The Levites are not purifying themselves. It is awful. I mean, he, you know, three chapters (laughs) previously, everyone's together. Okay, guys. Are we going to do this? Yes, 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 of course we're going to do this. And no sooner than the words have escaped their mouths, it seems, you're back into what Joshua 24 was describing, the same kind of scenario, and he sees all of this wickedness. (laughs) This is how Nehemiah ends, right? He's he's one of the last, like, um, historians, recording what's going on at this time. This is how his book ends. It's almost like Joshua. Verse 30, Nehemiah 13, 30. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for their first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. In other words, he tried to get them set straight, but then his last prayer is like, don't, it's essentially this, don't hold me accountable for what they are doing. God, remember me for the good I did, but these people, <laughs> these people, man, they are set. And these are some of the last words of the like narrative history of the people of Israel. Yes. And what did you say the people saw in Nehemiah and Ezra from that point? 
Well, so it, they, were, they were Jews, like everyone, most of the people were exiled to Babylon. That was what Babylonians did. They came in, they conquered, and then they scattered the people of that land into the rest of the empire, and they put in people from other parts of the empire into uh, the land they just conquered. It's so that, you know, you, you destroy their will to fight because they're scattered everywhere. Um, you take their youths, like uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you take the youth of that nation you just conquered, and you raise them up in your government. You know, speak your language, work for your government. So that's what happened. Now, this is all by prophecy. God said, 70 years, you're going to be in exile, and then you'll return. So after 70 years, new person, new kingdoms in charge. You have Cyrus, who allows the people to return to the land. So, yeah, not everyone returned. And you had, like, some stragglers in the land um, of course, like not everyone got wiped out or, or exiled. It's just like just a few stragglers. Um, but yeah, when people returned, it wasn't everyone. In fact, Nehemiah kind of had to drum up some support uh, for this. And there were some Jews uh, who just kind of supported it from afar, but they had established pretty decent lives. Um, in fact, you know who didn't go back? Daniel. You know, Daniel, from what it sounds like, he stayed within the courts of, of uh, Babylon and then Persia. And uh, it sounds like he stayed there. So you, I might assume, actually, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well um, probably stayed. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but it, there were certainly people who did stay back, for sure. So it wasn't everyone. Uh, I, I think so. I mean, but it's, it's very clear, say, from, like, Joshua, too, like, you know, they'd been wandering around in the desert with Moses and the Israelites for 40 years. They didn't know much about any other cultures, and yet they were still just as quick to intermarry and do all these things. It just was in their heart, just like it's in our, in our hearts. It can be to pursue sin. So, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that could be a, a possibility is that they had too much of um, Babylon or Persia in them. I think that's, that's worth saying. So, that, so in any case... It's a people problem. There's, uh, whether you might attribute it to them just having too much of the stain and taint and the lifestyle of the Persian Empire or the Babylonians on them, um, it, it doesn't matter because there are times where they don't really have any excuse and they still follow and wallow uh, in sin. And Nehemiah, poor Nehemiah over here. In fact, uh, what I love about Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of sister books together. Um, Ezra is even more kind of like cold, Ezra, Ezra's book ends with, after people confess their sin, he makes a list of priests who married like foreign or, or pagan wives. So here, the very last words of, of Ezra is like a memorial perpetually of these priests who intermarried, who should have known better. And that's like locked in there into the, into the text of scripture. And that kind of tells you the state of, of the people's heart. So, in any case, the Israelites, they did return to the land, but still almost immediately fell into the same sins. And again, we kind of face that problem of, man, this, there's got to be a way to fix this perpetual problem that's occurring here. If the people cannot obey in order to stay in the land, how can God keep that promise to Abraham. You're supposed to wonder about that. And you're supposed to remember, God, you have to do something. You have to transform people into the kind of people that can obey, that can keep the commandments of God 
And this is exactly what Ezekiel demonstrates to us. Before he gets to Ezekiel 48, which again is this, uh, actually 40 to 48, he talks about a new temple, a rebuilt Jerusalem. He talks about the people having returned and, um, and the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, once again entering the land. Before he gets there is Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 32. Ezekiel 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I'll vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. There's a way to reconcile the unconditional Abrahamic covenant and the conditional Mosaic covenant. And it's with the new covenant that's being described here. That yes, I can make it so that a conditional covenant becomes an unconditional one by changing your heart so that you can do all the requirements of this conditional covenant. And that's exactly what he promises here to them. I will give you the ability to obey and I will cause you to obey, and you will be restored to the land that I promised to your fathers. And the reason you can stay there is not only because I promised it to Abraham, but because you will be able to obey all that Moses said to do, and you will experience the blessings of obedience. This is something that has not happened in the history of Israel ever. This is how to bridge that gap that they can actually fully be restored into that land. And and this is what makes sense then of very peculiar passages in Ezekiel. Now, here I will admit that there is, and we'll talk about this a little bit and maybe a more discussion. Yeah, we'll have time. Framework. Uh, But here at our church, we do believe that this is future tense, that God will do these things with the people of Israel. He hasn't done them yet. Therefore, it remains to be done. So it must be a future prophecy. But Ezekiel chapter 40, you have, um, uh, or 40 through 42, you have a description of this gigantic new temple. This temple has never been built before. So it is a future prophecy. There's very specific, very, very, very specific measurements Um, to how this thing is to be built. It's almost certainly describing a real temple, in which case we're almost certainly talking about a real existence on a physical land, that this is not spiritualized. No Jewish person would read this and think, oh, 
I see. This is talking about how one day there's going to be like a, like a, a people of God, or Jews and Gentiles, and, and this temple is all spiritual. You know, uh, the measurements and everything, they're spiritualized uh, kinds of uh, truths and realities. No, no Jew would read this and think that at the time of Ezekiel, nor now. Yes, then. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I think so. I, I don't think this is going to be built. Um, I mean, not to get like, too much into like our, our eschatology, but there's, we assume there's going to be a third temple, but um, this is Ezekiel's temple. And maybe, maybe the third temple will transition into this, except that it gets desecrated, the, the third temple. But um, I, I, I think this is a unique, different temple. Yeah, future. Yeah, rich. Ezekiel 40, the whole chapters, 40 to 42. Um, Ezekiel's uh, 43 uh, and on uh, to, yeah, Ezekiel 43, the glory of God returns to this temple. And Ezekiel 44 through 46, you have um, the resumption of sacrifices uh, in this temple. And then in 47 and 48, you find again, for the only other time, boundaries associated with the people. So we can just read it real fast. 48, and this uh, is what is described, or what you see on your map on the back of your handout. Ezekiel 48, these are the names of the tribes, beginning in the, at the northern extreme, beside the way of Hethlon to Libo Hamath, as far as Hatsarinan, which is on the northern border of Damascus, over against Hamath, and extending from east side to the west, Dan, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Dan from the east to the west, Asher, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Asher from east uh, side to the west, Naphtali, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Naphtali from the east side to the west, Manasseh, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Manasseh from the east side to the west, Ephraim, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Ephraim from the east side to the west, Reuben, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Reuben from the east side to the west, Judah, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Judah from the east to the west shall be the portion which you shall set apart and uh, you're going to get these dimensions for this uh, uh, portion, another portion. Um, but essentially, um, you go <coughs> down to um, 23. As for the rest of the tribes from the east side to the west, Benjamin, one portion, adjoining the territory of Benjamin from, east, from the east side to the west, Simeon, one portion, adjoining the territory of Simeon from the east side to the west, Issachar, one portion, adjoining the territory... Of Issachar from the east side of the west, Zebulun one portion, adjoining the territory of Zebulun from the east side of the west, Gad one portion, and, uh, and adjoining the territory of Gad to the south, the boundary shall run from Tamar to the waters of Meribah Kadesh, from there along the brook of Egypt to the great sea. This is the land that you shall allot as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel, and these are their portions, declares the Lord Yahweh. Where have you heard that? Joshua 13 through 20 something. It's exactly that kind of language of boundaries and places, except that, you know, then it lists the city names. Here it doesn't list the city names, um, maybe because the city names are going to be different whenever this happens. So they don't talk about the express city names, but that idea of boundary, territory, tribe, boundary, territory, tribe, that was in Joshua. You don't see this anywhere else except one other place in Revelation, which we'll get to in a second, but you don't see or hear mention of all the tribes with a landlocked territory assigned deed to their name kind of thing until Ezekiel 48, out of all the prophets and all that is said. Uh, Inez, do you have a question? <clears throat> um, you know, 
Yeah, so this is almost laid out like, like, a, like a cake. It's got layers, you know? <laughs> yes, and that's maybe one argument that people make for maybe this is like spiritualized and not exactly, you know, um, because it seems much more um, like cut and dry that it, it, it's, it's maybe meant to be spiritualized, but you have very, very specific measurements of cubits, not just here, but even in the temple. Again, any, any Jewish person hearing Ezekiel or reading this letter would have <clears throat> distinctly assumed, God, you're saying there's going to be a future time? I don't see it now. <clears throat> We're, we've been conquered by the Babylonians. We're under the thumb of the Persians. Yeah, you know, some of us are, are going to go back after the 70 years. We have no king. How could these things be true except that you're saying them, God, and I got to believe you? And I remember what you said to Moses in Deuteronomy 30, that you're going to change our hearts. You're going you're gonna to make us dwell in the land. But <clears throat> you wouldn't definitely read this and think, we are, we're going to come to this. We're going to come back home to this. It might not be in my lifetime, lifetime of Ezekiel, but at some time. In fact, we know that this was an expectation even at the time of Jesus because in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> Remember, this is um, Jesus has died for sinners. He's buried three days. He rises on the third day. He preaches and teaches for 40 days the disciples, and now he's ascending into heaven and he's going to leave his apostles and his followers to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, of his gospel, that sinners can be reconciled to God by faith. <clears throat> so he's about to ascend into heaven. He actually is ascending. <clears throat> and they come together. They ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That is Ezekiel 40 through 48. That is, is this the time when you're going to gather us all together and we're going to worship and we're going to, we're, we're going to live in this restored um, temple and land and have all of your promises and there will be a king over us and all these things. And what does Jesus say? It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. In other words, what's the issue? It's not the right time. Issue is not a wrong understanding. Oh, no, 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 this, this is a spiritual kingdom, guys. You don't, you don't get it. There's, there's not actually like a literal kingdom that's going to come that I'm going to rule and reign over. Your conception about this is all wrong. It's too physical. No, it's now it's not the time. It's still yet future. But that's their expectation and what they think of when they think of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Furthermore, the only other time you see these lists of the names of the tribes laid out is in Revelation chapter 7. Future history, again, according to our church, some churches defer, but I don't think we've seen anything like this happen. Even I don't even know what an allegorical interpretation of this might look like. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. Where did you just hear those tribes? Ezekiel 48, Joshua, book of Joshua. This is future history. Actually, there is a way to spiritualize this. It's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. They say that this, you know, for a while, the Jehovah's Witnesses said that there's only 144,000 true believers 
And so that's what they were touting. Now, they got... and Exactly. <laughs> and they're like, okay, maybe there's more. <laughs> Why do you allow for more? Because I have more money and power and influence if our cult is bigger. So that is maybe one way to do it. But there's no reason to look at that and spiritualize the names of these tribes somehow, some way. If, if some Jews do, I mean, Jews come in all sorts of theology. I mean, you have, yeah, yeah, they would believe in a restoration. They would believe in um, a time when they will do the temple sacrifices and all those things. In fact, right now, there's a group ready to build a temple and start up the sacrifices. Um, so, yeah, yeah, for sure, that's, that's one of their understandings. But they wouldn't interpret, so this is talking about in Revelation 7, a future time when when people in Israel will acknowledge their Messiah and 144,000 of them will become witnesses to Mashiach, Jesus Christ. They will become witnesses to him. And so this is speaking of that um, it's like a sort of a precursor to this kingdom where they will rule Jesus, the king, will rule and reign from Jerusalem over the promised land. The Israelites will be true Israelites who will keep all the commandments and dwell in the land. This is a precursor to that. Most of Revelation. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, Ezekiel, yeah, yeah, they, they, they would. I mean, some actually Jews would spiritualize it too. Um, but I think a lot of Jews have a love-hate relationship with the Bible. It's like, you know, it's like the parts that are real good, we like. But it's like Christians too. The parts that we like, we like. Parts we don't like, let's forget about that. Whereas we're saying, you know, we got to take the whole thing, try to understand it in its context and apply it in its context. But I I cannot wiggle out of a verse because I don't like it or rubs me the wrong way. Um, But if you're a contemporary Christian or Jew or anyone that's going to hold to the Bible, like Thomas Jefferson, you, you cut out the parts you don't like, you keep the parts you do. Um, and we functionally do that even if you don't have wide outer scissors. Um, anyway, but yeah, uh, some Jews do, some don't. I mean, some just really kind of like spiritualize, allegorize everything, make it very nebulous. The whole sacrificial system, some uh, Reformed Jews would say, if you pray, it's okay. You don't need to offer a sacrifice in the temple. Well, yeah, 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 oh, they would, <laughs> they would, they would, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of glossing over, but there's a section there set aside for a prince. So they're expecting a king to rule and reign over them. So you have a, an allotment, and it's on the map for uh, a prince. And we'd say that's, that's the Messiah's allotment. Um, but yeah, Ethan, you had a question or comment? Well, I think uh, there's also the Old Yeah, yeah. I actually took a class at UCI called uh, Modern Jewish Practices and Beliefs. It was taught by a Reformed Jew, a rabbi. And it's so ironic because almost everyone in that class was Christians. Because you know who cares about (laughs) the the Jewish scriptures? Christians do. So you didn't have a lot of Jews taking the class. Um, And it wasn't a very big class anyway. But you could tell he had gotten questions about Isaiah, or about Jesus being the Messiah, because he had all these like cookie cutter 
sorts of answers, and he had materials, you know, that he'd just pass out. He really didn't want to engage in the discussion, because, again, Christians are the only ones taking his class, so what are they always doing, trying to do to him? You know, evangelize him, right? And I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, you know, you, you got to do that to the poor guy, because he's just getting quarter after quarter of the guys coming. So I didn't bother him too much. I did mention, though, Isaiah. Um, and so he gave me one of his cookie-cutter kind of, like, here's what I give everyone that asked me about Isaiah 53. Um, and, and what they do to Isaiah 53 is say that that suffering servant is Israel. That's how they allegorize it. Um, and, and, yeah, and it's like, so the suffering servant of Israel is Israel? <laughs> like, yeah, it, 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 doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't hold water. Um, but that's what you'll get from, say, like liberal Jewish people is they will look at things like that. And they will actually treat it the way, you know, in, in a way with a lot of uh, like liberal Christians do is is to spiritualize everything, turn everything into kind of like a spiritual principle or lesson, um, and not history. Well, it's both. It's history and it's a lesson. It's real and it teaches us how we should think about God and what is important. It's after. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like Reformed Jews, essentially, it opened a door to, like, atheist Jews, um, Jubus, which are Jewish Buddhists, um, all kind of like um, like combination Jews, secular Jews and all that. It just, it, they, they made it allowable. Like, they opened a door to that. Like, if you don't have to take the Bible seriously, then you can just kind of make up things that you want. Now, uh, I, I, th- I will say, this is, you know, 20-plus years ago, when I was talking to that rabbi, I could sense, if you sort of read between the lines, his own frustrations at times with like the reformed Jewish movement, because where's your teeth? If you don't think the Bible's real, what are you holding people to? Well, they tell a lot of stories about rabbis. Um, And then you just immediately start thinking, it just sounds like the Pharisees, (laughs) like Jesus time is 2,000 years later. But... Yeah, 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 yeah. About that rap, I know I don't. I mean, I have the the notes still somewhere, actually. But <laughs> I didn't know they turned a, a, a skating rink into a synagogue. <laughs> Sounds like a like a Mel Brooks uh, you know thing. <laughs> Jews on like a you know anyway. <laughs> uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know they converted the ice rink to a synagogue. Um, well, w- what's at stake? I mean, I, I'm 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 basically telling you that the land is important, that the land is a significant like character in the Bible, um, and that it hasn't reached its fulfillment. You know, it hasn't um, met. Uh, the, the, the destiny that God had for it, to be a place in which the people of God would dwell and be a blessing to the world. What's at stake? Well, one of the things at stake is the, the very notion of what we call hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the 
art and science of interpreting the Bible. And by art, I don't mean that you can just make it up, but uh, art in the sense that um, there is an element of subjectivity to it that we have to be aware of when we study our Bibles and when we interpret it. And, And one of the most basic kinds of questions is, when do you take the Bible literally, and when do you see it telling a story, a parable, or an allegory? Right? The very notion of hermeneutics is uh, integral um, to this discussion because you will have not, you know, you can have very, you know, conservative, not liberal Christians believe that these land promises are spiritualized promises. That you would read Ezekiel 40 through 48, and uh, it's a little bit uh, tough to read because there's a lot of measurements. You're like, if I'm not an architect, I'm just starting to zone out because you have measurements of this many cubits and you're going to try and you know, imagine these colonnades and, and all these things. Um, just, just Google a picture. <laughs> Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. You can Google a picture of like Ezekiel's temple and like, okay, I got an idea. Because it's describing it in words, all right? Um, but there, there are some you know, Christians that I would agree with and, and love and minister with. They would look all that and basically say, well, this, this is essentially just um, uh, emphasizing a system that is fulfilled in Christ. Christ has um, taken the, or Christ is the fulfillment of the temples, the sacrifices, the priesthood. Let's just read Hebrews. So why would you care about the shadow when the reality is here? The sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple, those are just the shadow of Jesus Christ. And so the Jews were kind of, you know, looking at the shadow, but now we have the reality. So, you know, if, you know, I I wouldn't um, fawn over my wife's shadow if my, you know, wife is there. So it's kind of like, well, if, you know, if if you're a Christian, you don't worship or you don't believe that those things uh, are necessary anymore. But I would say there can be a both and. There can be a real truth about the land being a promise and Christ being the fulfillment. There's nothing that says they have to be uh, either or. Um, And so I I think that a Jewish person, again, reading Ezekiel or really Isaiah, many of the prophets who talk about this, they would understand that they are going to be restored to the land. And it'd be kind of like a bait and switch. What what some well-meaning Christians, I think, would say, well, is it really a bait and switch? If I tell you um, that you are going to get uh, a 2002 Ford Escort, but I give you the latest, you know, Lamborghini, right? Because, you know, they're saying that the land, the physical land is like nothing in comparison to spiritual blessings and eternal life and all these things. So, you know, it's, it's just a spiritualizing. Why would you be disappointed in getting the greater thing? So it's like, you know, I'm telling you that you're, if I was very descriptive about giving you uh, like a 1998 Ford Escort, you know, and all the way it works, this is exactly what I'm giving you, including the measurements. And I said, just kidding, um, I'm giving you a rocket ship, you know, that can take you to the moon whenever you want. Well, the problem is it doesn't, it still makes you a liar. It's still, you're still bait and switching. I appreciate I got something better. But why didn't you just tell me you're giving me a rocket ship? Why did you go to all the trouble of describing a 1998 Ford Escort and saying that's what I'm getting? 
And that's exactly how it feels like. It's like all the prophets get into very intimate detail about exactly what the Jewish people are going to get down to like cubits and measurements. And then for God to say, no, actually, I'm going to get you something better. Well, it does still feel like it is still a bait and switch, even if it's something better. I mean, it's an unexpected surprise. It's a good one. But I think you could still accuse someone. Well, I was, I was very misled by that. I, I was like, oh, okay, um, that'll fit in my garage. You know, you're making plans. You know, 94 Escort will fit in my garage and, and all this stuff. I don't know where I'm going to put a rocket ship. You know, you start, like, it's still a bait and switch. I know that's a really rough analogy. I didn't think about that ahead of time. Um, but hermeneutics, in other words, uh, the art and science of s- interpreting the Bible compels us to understand how are you going to take these promises? And if they're future, what does that mean for Israel? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I'll, I'll say this. Um, I've got... No, uh, well, the, we will be, according to Zechariah 14, the nations are going to come and celebrate the feasts, but we're not the Levites. It's not like we're going to replace the Levites and so on. Like, they are still going to do that which God required and commanded the Jewish people to do, but the nations of the world are going to participate in them, not, not in the work of them, let's say, but the, the feast, uh, apparently Zechariah 14 talks very clearly about the nations going up to worship together at these feasts. And if any nation doesn't, they get punished um, at this time, this future time. I'm, I'm, not, I'm purposely avoiding terms like a premillennial or rapture and those kinds of things. They're just going to talk about the land. Um, but I, I, I do think this is going to be a future period of time the last 1,000 years, Revelation describes this, and it will be the Jewish people actually living out what God had required them to do. They had never done it, really, fully in heart. They hadn't. It was always mixed with, um, with sin. Um, There's always imperfect people that was, was doing it. It doesn't make it you know, bad in the sense that if you did it by faith, God is going to credit that as righteousness, but there will be a time when the Jews will do it, and they will be doing it as, you know, full-hearted. Kind of, yeah. Like, like it's, a, it's, a, it's a chance to, to actually have done it and for the world to see the Jewish people actually obeying the Lord as God had called them to do. And it's going to be like a light, you know, a beacon to all the nations. Uh, we don't get into all those chapters, but... Hermeneutics, that's one reason we're talking about this and talking about the land, how we interpret and study the Bible, how you read it. You know, do you just read Ezekiel 40 through 48 and think, okay, like, I really don't need to care about this because it's not really real. It gets superseded. I don't need to get into the weeds. But if it's really real, then you start asking questions about the land and the temple and, and the prince and all these things, and, it, and you start to approach it differently. You have to approach it differently. Um, again, not getting too much in the weeds, but also that also gets into does the church replace Israel spiritually? And I don't, I don't think we do. That's kind of an answer to your question. Is like we don't replace um, Israel. So anyway, hermeneutics. Second thing that's at stake: the new covenant is the way that Gentiles get brought into the people of God. So. When we talk about the the conundrum of unconditional covenant to Abraham, conditional covenant to to Moses, 
The resolution is this new covenant whereby God is going to change hearts so that they can worship and honor the Lord. That's where Gentiles can be included into the plan. So by the very nature of this land, really the Mosaic covenant has to do with the land and the people and their interaction. Because of that dynamic, that that, uh, unresolved kind of tension between the Mosaic and the Abrahamic covenant, you have this thing called the new covenant. And because of the new covenant, you now have... For most of us here who are, are Gentiles, if you're not Jewish, I'm not a Jew, I get to be a part of the deal. <laughs> so I'm very thankful about these land promises, you could say, because it's in that tension that I have an opportunity to be a part of it. And you, if you, um, we'll go back to Genesis 12 too. I promised I'd do that, so now's the time. Uh, in Genesis 12 too, part of the promise he said to them about the land is this, I will um, let's start in verse 1. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation. And I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now notice, this is contingent upon go to the land that I will show you. And then all these things will happen. It's tied to the land that the whole world and all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And so part the way that we are blessed, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, non-sons of, and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is in that new covenant, that tension that gets brought up between the people, the Jewish people, and their land. It opens up this way that we can all be included in. So I'm very thankful uh, for these truths. And we can go to Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, Zechariah 9, 10. It just, it's very important that God's plan for redeeming the world is hand-in-hand uh, hand with the Jewish people and their land. I mean, it sounds peculiar, but it is. And you'll, that's why, though, you'll also see and we've talked about this in Joshua, that the promise then becomes a metaphor for like heaven and eternal life with God. And so it's important that the Jewish people, the people of God, end up in the promised land literally because it is supposed to be like an image and picture of the people of God from all time in history, being with Christ, being with God the Father, being with the Holy Spirit forever and ever in heaven. So it's kind of, it needs to happen because this other thing uh, needs to happen. So our inclusion uh, as Gentiles um, is because of that solution of the new covenant, um, and that's something I'm supremely thankful for. So that's what's at stake about this land promise. Lastly, the future hope of restoration, the Israelites one day being the, the people of God that God called them to be. Um, it won't get into all of this, but um, Dr. Vlock, uh, Michael Vlock has a great blog for reasons premillennialism must be true. Don't worry about the premillennialism part. Just that very question of why is it that there's going to be this time where the Israelites um, are going to rule in the kingdom, Jesus with king over all. Why is that a literal, physical, historical, future history uh, necessity? And he goes through four reasons, um, but it's essentially uh, as a demonstration that God's promises are true all of them, that God can do that which no one would think he could do, which is change hearts and lives to walk in obedience to him. There's going to be a vindication 
at that time. Anyone who would question God's promises, they'll be shown, they will be shown to be the fool. There are promises yet to be fulfilled, prophecies that haven't happened yet that are going to be fulfilled at that time. Not only Ezekiel 40 through 48, Isaiah 65, Zechariah 14, and go on and on. But essentially, this is saying that um, because of the land promises, <clears throat> there is um, an expectation that we have for the restoration of Israel. And if there's an expectation of a restoration for Israel, that God is going to keep his promises to them, despite all that you read, like I said earlier, when you see all their failures over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, if God can redeem and restore them, there's hope for you. None of us here, I think, would consider ourselves perfect. If you do, you got to let me know so I can know your secrets. Um, but if you feel like you've screwed up things pretty bad or that God couldn't possibly want you or forgive you, what the land demonstrates, what them being in the land demonstrates is no one is too far gone. That God can redeem and restore the most lostest of us, truly indeed. So you need, you should want Israel to one day be in that land. Again, this is a separate conversation entirely, the, whether the Israel that is in Israel now in the land and the Jewish people in charge, whether that's, that, that's, they are not a restored Israel. I mean, we can talk about that, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about a time when all Israel believes in their Messiah and follows him. If that can happen, and if God can still receive them and accept them and hold true to them, then whatever's going on in your life, whoever you think you are, whatever you think you've done, you have hope. <laughs> you have hope that you can be redeemed and restored as well, that God can look at your past and screwed up as it might be. He can still look at you with grace and mercy, and we know that because that's exactly what the king, the king of this kingdom did. Every other kingdom, you fight for the king. You die for the king. But in the kingdom of Christ, he fights, he dies for you. And that's what Jesus has done on the cross, living his perfect life. He laid it down so that we might be credited with that righteousness by faith. So that is the future of the promised land. Touched on a lot of things. If you have any questions, we can talk more. But I wanted to make sure to, to get that kind of um, uh, player, that, that, that character in the Old Testament, uh, a little bit of a closure, the, the promised land. So hopefully that made sense. Again, if not, we can talk about it more. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that if there's hope for Israel, there's hope for me, uh, that we do want to cut the Bible rightly, cut it straight, know what it says, be precise in understanding about its figures and about its um, uh, metaphors, about its measurements and about its truths, that we want to understand them and embrace them because ultimately they're telling us things about you. It's not just about history and names and dates. It is telling us about how we can relate to a holy, perfect God, that you were gracious and merciful, that you uh, show us <clears throat> how we ought to live, and then when we fail to do that, um, you, you send a sacrifice uh, for us. So thank you, God, uh, for your word. Thank you, God, for these truths. Help us to understand and embrace them moment by moment, day by day. And pray this in Jesus' name. Oh, Lord, bless this uh, time of food and fellowship that's to follow that it might be an encouragement to our souls. Help us to eat and drink to the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.